You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the annual food plot episode that I put out. I, I, you know, I actually talk about food plots more than once a year, but I'm saying this is the big one. And it's the big one because we have a guest today who is a professional. I mean, he's an agronomist. He knows soil. He knows uh, soil temps. He knows pH levels. He knows when to plant, how to plant, uh, the best growth for particular seeds, blah, 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 and so on. Basically, what I'm getting at is Mitchell Shirk of the Pennsylvania, out, or Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast is a stud. He knows his stuff uh, when it comes to food, food, uh, food plots and habitat management, and uh, that's who you're going to hear from today. Man, we talk about everything that I just mentioned. We talk about, you know, mistakes guys make. Uh, we talk about um, deer behavior and how food plots can affect deer behavior, and how to place and decide what type of seed to plant for your food plots based on deer behavior. And so it's a very in-depth conversation. Um, it, it's, it's just really good. I mean, I'll be completely honest, man. I don't know shit about growing anything, about food plots. I know that you need sun, you need air, you need water, uh, and that and soil, and that grows dirt, or that grows that grows dirt, that grows uh, uh, food, plants, and, and whatnot. And so. He breaks it all down, makes it real easy to digest. You can tell he's passionate about it because it's what he does for a living and ultimately getting to the point where food plots help you kill deer. And so uh, that's what we talk about today. And I'm excited for you guys to hear this episode. Even if you're like the public land junkie, this is a good episode just to listen to, you know, to see how the other side lives. And uh, I enjoyed it and I, I know you guys will too. Uh, if you're looking for a saddle, go check out Tethered. Uh, Tethered has this huge community behind them that basically allows them to communicate with everybody about how to become a better saddle hunter or how to become a better hunter in general. On top of that, they have awesome products 
right? They have awesome people who work for them. So if you're uh, looking for a saddle, whether you're looking for saddle hunting accessories, climbing sticks, platforms, go check out Tethered. Uh, WaspArchery.com, go check those guys out. Uh, fixed blades, mechanicals, in my opinion, some of the best designed broadheads on the market from the best materials possible and a majority of their heads are still made right here in the united states and that means something to me and so uh if you're a mechanical guy i strongly and i'm i'm you know they always want me to rep the newest the latest greatest broadhead that they have uh i don't use it uh, i use the the stuff that i've been using for the past however many years and so if that's a fixed blade that's a boss four blade uh, i love that head and if it's a mechanical, I'm using the jackhammer. And I've killed more deer with a jackhammer than any other broadhead combination, any other bullet, any other anything else combined. Uh, so my confidence is in, in, in that product line and in that company, and that's where it's going to stay for the time being. Um, uh, next on the, oh, uh, NFC20 for 20% off. NFC20. 20% off wasparchery.com. Go check them out. Uh, hunt stand. It's that time of year, man. Uh, and I say this on every episode, but, but if you want to stay in it and if you want to actually have a, um, you know, if you actually want to keep your mind fresh all year round, I strongly suggest getting hunt stand and just brainstorming ideas just brainstorming all of your uh, you know access routes wind directions stand locations where you should put trail cameras uh, document everything that you see and that way when the time comes to actually hunt you have all this information at your fingertips on top of that uh, hunt stand allows you to uh, organize trail camera picks It'll, it shows you rut dates like a, a heat a temperature map with rut dates it allows you to um, check out like month, brand new monthly satellite imagery. And uh, that's important, especially when you're on the fly uh, and you're hunting multiple states. So uh, huntstand.com. Last but not least, Vortex. The whole crew at Vortex, man, they're coming out with some pretty cool stuff. I just got an email today from a guy named Graham that I work with over there about what products, you know, are going to be promoted here in, in the near future. And they got some really cool things coming up. And I'm excited for their uh the to share with you guys the new products i'm trying to schedule a podcast with them on the hunting gear side of things to where i can you know showcase some of their you know and talk about some of their new products and uh so vortexoptics.com if you're looking for badass binoculars spotting scopes rifle scopes red dots range finders binoculars um, and then on top of that yet they just have this kick-ass apparel line this lifestyle brand that is of vortex gear so go check that out as well and that's it ladies and gentlemen um huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to participate and listen uh, and, and join this nine-fingered community uh, thank you very much and uh let's get into this food plot episode three two one all right on the phone with me today mr mitch shirk all the way from pennsylvania what's up man Hey, same stuff, different day, I guess. Keep them busy in any way, shape, and form. There you go. There you go. All right, so I have to tell you tell you this quick story. First off, how many kids do you have right now? I have two. So we have 
Uh, both March babies, exactly two years apart. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Okay, three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so this morning, right, my, my boys, usually they eat their breakfast, they leave the, uh, the plates on the table, and then they go. And so I'm like, hey, guys, it's time to start growing up a little bit. It's time to start putting your dishes in the sink. And, you know, after you get done eating. And so my, my youngest boy, he's five years old, has a, a, like a glass or it's a porcelain bowl, right, with his oatmeal in it. And I said, hey, Knox, did you, uh, did you clear off your place? No, I'll go do it. So he went, he did it, and he literally slam dunked the bowl into the sink. Like he was just like da 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 da, wow! Slammed it and it shattered, and then he just walked away. I'm just like, well, he did what I asked him to do. I, he didn't need he didn't need to 360 windmill it, but he cleared off his place. And so I'm like, buddy, next time we got to make sure you do it a little bit gent- gentler. We got to set it in, not dunk it. And so that's that was the big event in our household this morning before everybody got on the bus. Kids find any way to test your patience, man. I mean, I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion, though, coming from that story. I have a feeling that that kid takes after his father. <laughs> yeah, uh, like <laughs> not necessarily with the most brains. Like, <laughs> like I mentioned this on another uh, podcast where I said, here is an ape. I'm at like there's an ape, and I'm just like one little step above an ape. I just yeah, have kind of like when they were handing out brains, and you thought they said trains, and you said I'll take a slow one. <laughs> I don't know if that if that was a jab or, uh, but I, it made me laugh. It so. made you laugh. Yeah. That's all it's worth. It. Yeah, absolutely. And hey, I need to laugh at any like any chance I get these days. Any chance well, I get, absolutely, because otherwise you cry. Exactly. laughing's better than crying even if it's a crazy laugh like (laughs) i'm going crazy so yep yep um it's spring dude let's see pennsylvania did you get out turkey hunting at all so we don't open up this so so the day we're recording this here tomorrow is youth hunt and then we open up it's usually the last saturday in april or the first saturday in may so um yeah, you know, turkeys are one of those things. I used to think I was a big, bad turkey hunter, loved to go turkey hunting, and then yeah. life happens, and you realize the craziness, and I don't get out near as much. So I, I still like to go turkey hunting, but I don't think about turkeys until it's turkey season, then a light switch flips, and I get really weird for like a short span of time, and then after that, I'm back into my my normal uh, hunting it, hunting uh, thoughts, which are typically deer and, and bear hunting here. Yeah. Man, it, it sounds to me, this sounds crazy because you guys, I mean, we've been open for almost three weeks here in Iowa. And some mm-hmm. states, I think uh, Nebraska is a state that opens in March even, or there's other states that open in March. Man, it just seems like by the time you guys get into the woods, it's damn near green already, 100% green. Well, traditionally, the first week is still like in that transition. Usually mm-hmm. it's like you, you're just starting to get leaf out and stuff but this year we've been exceptionally warm like we had days the first week of april that were in the 80s like yeah. you know 
uh, the, the ground temperature is way warmer than it's ever been this time of year. I mean, we're doing more as far as planting and stuff in the agricultural world that, you know, which is what I'm immersed in. And it's, we're way ahead of schedule. Yeah. So I was talking about with a friend this morning and we're like, I think it's going to be full leaf out by opening day, yeah. which I don't, I don't typically, I'm not typically used to, but yeah, we do typically hunt turkeys later. Yeah. That's nuts, man. I like, I feel the just amount of gobbling in response and, and I've never hunted Pennsylvania for turkeys before. I just, if I was to compare it like going out the first and second week in April, man, the turkeys were talking, uh, the first mm-hmm. season when I went out, they were talking, they were, it was a great, you know, it was beautiful weather. Uh, and they were talking, uh, they, they weren't quite hend up. I mean, the one that I shot wasn't hend up, but I would feel like either they're going to be extremely hend up or they're just going to be almost to the point of ah, breeding seasons over, man. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we hunt until Memorial Day weekend and I've already hunted that last week and see hens with poles. It's pretty common, but I've also been on some pretty dang hot gobblers that last week of May. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. I actually like that we hunt them later because I think based on, you know, the little bit of research I've done and listening to biologists, it seems as though that's uh, following the, the scientific rule, like wait until the peak, peak of the breeding is done just because you disrupt that hierarchy and stuff like that with, mm-hmm. with uh, the, like, it just seems like it makes sense. I know so many people in our state complain about it, but I think it, you know, if anything is done that is, is following science, I'm, I'm for that. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, let's see here. Um, food plot season right Mm -hmm. i I mean i i was watching planters go crazy last week in the woods before this uh this rainy wet week that we're having right now and there was a lot of people in the fields uh is that was that the case up there in pennsylvania well it's kind of funny because we're it's abnormal so just to give you an idea as far as planting usually april 15th in our area is like the cutoff for when an insurance company is going to um like honor a replant let's say you have some catastrophic fail when you plant and usually if you plant before april 15th and then you have a weather related instance then insurance company's got not going to cut off because you planted too early and it give give or take corn and beans i'm talking mostly for corn so i had a lot of people that it was fit the plant the soil temperature was like almost 60 degrees Mm -hmm. and we dry i mean i've never seen the dust fly this time of year in april and I got guys, man, I should be planting. I should be planting. And, and I was literally like all my growers, like pulling the reins back as far <laughs> as I can. Like, guys, pump the brakes. We are in the beginning of April. I said, do you know how many times I've been out turkey hunting the first week of May in Pennsylvania? And I had to wear winter clothes. I said, you, you can't think that just because we're warm, you, you got to think about how the soil is going to warm up. Right. So all winter long, the entire soil profile is cold right and then when we start getting those warmer temperatures it's going to warm from the top down so it you know we start you know one inch down two inch down three inches down we start warming that up you get one cold spell one cold rain the lower half of the soil profile is still cold so you get two ends of it getting cold and we go right back into extremely cold temperatures so i know that's a long-winded answer but like i i was pulling the reins back so hard on so many people like you have everything to lose and nothing to gain with our climate and our soils and going crazy. But I would say a lot of the growers I work with were probably at that like 25 to 35% of their acres are in the ground, kind of focusing more on soybeans than corn. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely 
ahead of schedule. We, we got stuff in the ground. I've been digging around, checking planners out. So yeah, it's, uh, it's happening. I'm, I'm, I'm not too, too crazy about planting annuals for food plots yet. I think we're still early, but, uh, did a lot of clover and, and alfalfa food plots, you know, in the ground already. So that's, you know, that's, that's rolling. Yeah. Um, wh- one thing I heard my grandpa talk about in the past when, when I was just kind of tagging along with him was seed rot is, th- does that come from having too wet of soil or, or planting too early in the spring months? It can be, you know, it's, there, there's all kinds of different terms, you know, for calling seed rot. A lot of the time what you have when you have cool, wet conditions, you can really develop early season disease where pretty much, you know, there's, there's all kinds of names for the diseases and it's really hard to tell. Pretty much it just looks like the plant sits there, it's pale yellow color, it's not able to take in nutrients because the soil's too saturated, too wet, which is common for this time of year. So uh, that can lead to issues with um, stand loss. Mm-hmm. And uh, with corn, that's a big deal. I mean, you lose 2,000 plants per acre in a stand, uh, that's a direct yield hit. You're probably looking at 5 to 10% yield loss. Yeah, yeah. And and so, like, how does a guy – I mean, obviously, weather forecasts only go out so far before you have to start looking at historical data. How does a guy – you know, knowing that in the spring – he has to typically dodge rainstorms or periods of wet weather. Uh, here's a perfect example this year of cold or uh, very warm weather, getting everybody's hopes up, followed by a week of heavy moisture and cold temps. How mm-hmm. how does a guy who's going out there trying to plant, whether it's a small food plot or a, you know big cornfield, how do, how do they know? when to get out there and actually put the seed in the ground at the time that's the most beneficial for the seed? (laughs) Well, the way I would answer that, I mean, there's, there's a million rabbit holes you could go down with that, Dan. The biggest thing that I tell people with a food pot, like, look, we are not trying to gain a couple extra growing degree days and plant a little bit early with the hopes that, you know, that's going to put up, you know, six more bushels, you know, you know, that's not what we're looking at in food plots for food plots. I want to put seed in the ground and I want it to come out of the ground in three days. I mean, I want it to be boom that quick. So in order to get that, you need warm soil temperatures. Yeah. Like I, I want for food plots, um, you know, we plant corn and soybeans and in, in, in row crops, sometimes under 50 degree soil temperatures for food plots. I want to see soil temperature 60 degrees and above most of the time. And I, I think that just means delaying your planting. I think it just comes back to, OK, what what are you planting in the first place? Because that's a whole different case in point. I mean, alfalfas and clovers, we can plant those perennials really early. And most of those are done by now. I'm getting to the to the end of the year when I want to plant those. If you're talking about just planting a monocrop food plot like a food plot or a soybean you know you can get away with stuff depending on you know if, are you having a custom farmer plant it for you or are you doing it the old-fashioned way with whatever tools you have and you know disking it in cold packing it in um you, you know those are things to consider i just personally think you know if you're if you're doing most of the annual multi-species cover crop blends that we'll, we'll put together in the summertime uh, wait till the soil temperature is 60 degrees. And the easiest way to do, uh, you know, the most accurate way to do that 
is go out in the morning and literally just take like a, a grill thermometer, like a digital grill thermometer and stick it in the ground two inches at nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. That's usually the coldest time of the, of the day. So if you get a reading at that time of day, then you're going to have a really good indication of what's the worst case scenario right now if I plant. And if, you know, if you're at 60 degrees at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, you're, you're cocked, locked and ready to rock. Yeah. All right. So obviously soybeans, you know, have a certain amount of days from the days that, you know, you plant them to the days that the pods come out and, and the deer want to eat them. Same thing with corn, same thing with clover. Like there, there's these, what's the term like peak ripeness or, um, yeah, like your maturity. maturity. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how much does that come into play as far as like, plant maturity how far how long how much does that come into play when you're when you're trying to figure out a planning date when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply um yeah, that's a, that's a kind of an interesting one to answer so like from a corn and soybean standpoint there's a lot of different theories out there in the agricultural world and it's hard to say which one is right i will say if you from so i'm going to i'm going to just go into a, a little bit of an agricultural rant so when you plant corn um usually you want you know, everybody wants to maximize their maturity. The longer the maturity, the longer it's going to be between growth stages to maximize yield. So if you are planting early and you have a, a really long maturity, you've got, you know, more window during stress periods for that, you know, crop to develop. Um, the later you go into the year, you'd think, well, maybe I should shorten my variety because I don't want it, want it to get hit with a frost. I've actually kind of seen the opposite from corn. I, I want to the longer into the season, you know, for planting, the actually I want to keep my maturity a little bit longer because what happens is you start to put your plants into like in uh, like a more stressful situation. Like if you're planting mid-May and you get into June drought, um, those shorter windows for each growth stage will actually hurt your overall yield potential. So I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. So wrapping it up with a food plot, um, for me, if you're just looking at it, a solid corn or a solid soybean stand, I just say keep your maturity length long in the first opportunity you get plant because that's going to give you your lowest risk of crop failure from, from weather-related instances. If you keep your maturity level very long, same thing. With, so, so corn, you know, let's just say it's 100-some-plus-day variety of corn. Um, even if it doesn't reach full maturity before it reaches frost, the deer is still going to eat it. Like what, what, what are, are we, are we trying to grow, make money? Or are we trying to kill deer in a food plot? So that's one thing to consider the soybean thing too. 
I personally think the longest maturity that you have as possible is good. Like, you know, something that's like an indeterminate soybean, meaning it's just basically going to go, go until it hits that first frost. It's going to be pushing new leaves and green and pushing flowers until it hits that frost. That way you have green forage that they can they can feed on up until you know the weather kills that plant and then whatever pods have developed you know that's that's into the late season but again it all comes back to how are you structuring your food plot program for your hunting season and that's like i said that's a a, you know different avenue i guess gotcha what are some what are some uh crops out there that are pretty durable and what i mean by that is you can plant them in shitty conditions they're going to grow and deer are going to eat them yeah uh really hard for me to beat cereal grains so the rye the wheat um i don't really like barley in in food plots but rye wheat and triticale um oats until they frost out those are really hardy i mean you can throw those on a on a uh, on a driveway and they'll grow sometimes yeah. um rat, you know a lot of brass is like just throwing out a, a tillage radish Tillage radishes kind of grow anywhere either. So those are really simple things. Those are more fall seeded things. Um, a lot of people talk about clover and alfalfa and that, and th- this is true when you're, when you're putting in an agricultural setting, I want to have a pH that's six, five to seven, and I'd like to have pretty baseline fertility to get that you know perennial crop established. But I've thrown clover out in some, I mean, crap soil. I mean, just down in the dirt, poor soil. And it's done really well. I mean, for me, it, you know, especially in the small food plot world, clover is really hard to beat just because of how much attraction it has throughout the season. And it really does seem to grow anywhere as long as it's got sunlight, moisture, and, you know, you're, you're doing a little bit of TLC. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, so then what are some seeds or food plots, um, uh, plants that need very specific care? They need to be baby basically yeah i think corn and beans you know in order to get the maximum out of them they got to be they got to be babied and that's why i actually don't like to do a lot of corn and soybean plots for for a couple reasons number one most of the places that i plant you know i might have a food plot that's two acres but if i planted corn and beans in that two acres i don't think i would have anything to hunt on by october one just Mm -hmm. because of the deer density and the, the situation that i'm in um, but no, like corn, we, we got to have moisture. We got to have nitrogen holding capacity. We've got to have a lot of things in line and it takes a lot of, lot more maintenance for those plants and it's expensive. I mean, if you get a, a bag of corn seed right now for farmers is ranging between 300 and $400 a bag, and that's probably going to plant you two plus acres. Um, so that's, that's kind of crazy when you think about it. And soybeans are the same. They're expensive. They're, they're not, not quite the investment of corn, but, um, you know, you put a big investment into it and you want to see it, you want to see it grow. You want to see it do well. And I just think, um, that can get yourself in those two crops. I think without having a a little bit of knowledge of what you're doing and having the right situation, that's setting yourself up for quick failure, I guess. Right. So, I mean, this is this next question is a, a dead like beating a dead horse, but I feel like this time of year it's important that it, it gets covered. How important is soil testing for all of the stuff that we've kind of just mentioned? Yeah, that's a that's a question that to me will never get old because I don't think it gets enough emphasis because I get calls all the time. 
you know, people know that I'm an agronomist and work with farmers and uh, I get people all the time. I just had one the other day. Hey, I want to plant a food plot. What should I do? I want I was thinking about putting this on this on that. I'm like, well, did you take a soil test? Well, no. Well, then how do you know what you're actually doing? A soil test to me is probably the most underutilized thing. It is to me, the foundation. I mean, are you going to build your house on sand? Are you going to build it on rock? And to me, the soil test is a rock. I understand that when you're talking about soil tests, um, if I take a probe six inches and pull a bunch of cores, I'm literally, you know, six inches of soil depth and an acre is 2 million pounds of soil. Mm -hmm. So I'm literally taking a handful of soil and then from that, the lab is taking a teaspoon, and that's going to represent 2 million pounds of soil in one acre. So I realize that there's a level of error, but at the same time, what other starting point do you have that's going to be any better as far as managing your 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 your, uh, your pH, your macros, and, and whatever rabbit holes you want to get into? You know, th this... There's there's the other end of the spectrum where people take it in the food plot world and the agro world, but they'll take it to the extreme and fine tuning all these different micronutrients and understanding, you know, you know, they'll do soil health tests, which is a, a whole nother rabbit hole we don't need to get into, but they'll get so in depth with the details, which there's nothing wrong with. I just question what are your goals? Are, are you looking to to make the, the healthiest soil in the world, which, again, I'm not bashing. Just from where my priorities lie, I want to do all the right things as far as fertility and soil health, knowing that it's just going to make a better food plot so I can kill deer on it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now now strictly from a uh, a food plot standpoint, let's, let's say you have your property and your neighbor's property, and they are the exact same property. They're, they're, they each have the same amount of cover. They each have the same amount of uh, uh, area or number of acres or surface area dedicated to food plots. What would you do on your property from a food plot standpoint to make it so deer would rather visit your farm to eat than their farm to eat? Well, I think the question you're asking me is, is identical setup properties as far as available food and stuff, what would you do differently? Mm -hmm. The first thing I would do, it's not even really food plot related, is I would watch what my neighbors do as far as hunting. Is there anything that they are doing on their property from an access standpoint and from, uh, you know, just a, a stand placement standpoint that is screwing them and they don't realize it, that's going to give me advantage? Because I've said this before and I'll say this again. When it comes to hunting on private land, nothing has made a greater impact positively for my hunting than food plots. However, in the same breath, I have had just as big of fails with food plots because there were things I didn't consider that hurt me. And what I mean by that is create a food plot, right? You're creating a highly luscious, attractive food source that you want to come to, right? And it doesn't take much until you mess that up. You know, if, if you're not careful and you're bumping deer off of that, you're attracting them to just chase them off. It quickly turns that into just a nighttime food source, mm -hmm. which turns your property into a nighttime parcel. And I would, I want to see, okay, look, they've got everything that I'm doing, um, but they're hunting it just a little bit off for their liking. If I can access my property this much better, I think that's going to be my first advantage. And then uh, the, the second thing is I just want to make sure from a, a food standpoint, I want to have food from 
one month prior to the opening of season, and I want to have as much food that's going to be peaking throughout the entire season as I possibly can. Ideally, from one one month before archery opener until right when the last day of late season closes, I want to have a food source. Not always easy to do on the properties I have, but that's that's my goal because I think you can keep the consistency of that property use and that food plot use going. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people think, well, I'm going to plant brassicas because brassicas are the best food plot in the world. They're, they're fantastic. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but a solo crop of brassicas planted in the wrong situation, man, they'll wipe that out in seconds. Same thing with with uh, with corn and beans. I mean, I think the biggest food plot fail that I see. And it's common because I go to farms, I start talking with farmers and they'll say, yeah, I got, I got food plots, you know, back of my property. You want to check them out? Sure. And we'll go look at them and well, they just take their corn planter because they have a, you know, $200,000 corn planter that they can do it. And they yeah. go through and they, they plan a corn food plot and I'll be looking at it in August. I'm like, you don't have any food here. They've already, the silks came out, the deer ate it off because you put it in a one acre field. Yeah. Like you're not, that, that, that's a fail to me. So, um, just placing the wrong species. So, um, species placement and how you do it, that that's, those are the two things I think that really shine when you're comparing neighborhoods. Okay. And so, you know, I, I've talked with a guy, uh, my buddy, Tom Peplinski, and he talks about, I don't mm-hmm. give a shit what the deer are doing in July and August. All I care about is what they're doing on my property with my food that I have got, you know, that I have for them. October and November, similar to what you just (laughs) mentioned there. So is that more of a um, time of planting for peak maturity or is that a roping off the food so it doesn't get eaten and then unroping it closer to that, that uh, hunting season timeframe? Could be. I've seen that done. I've seen people um, do exactly that rope stuff off. Planting times are, are all important. I think a lot of it's just coming down to species. One plant species is not going to do it all. Yeah. Like, like there's there's no one plant out there that just is going to, you know, okay. I, I think that's the thing everybody thinks with food plots. They think, oh, this, you know, oh, I heard this food plot has this new collard in it. That's going to be the ticket. Well, mm-hmm. it's, it's really not. It's just another another plant species. To me, the more plant species you have across your landscape that, that are all going to peak at different times, even if you put them at the right ratios in the same mix, you know, you have a 10, 13, 14, 15 way mix of all these species. Um, if, if the person that makes the seed knows what they're doing and putting those ratios together, it's going to grow together and they're going to peak at different times and the deer are going to select, you know, their concentrated browsers, they're going to select what they want throughout the entire year. So, you know, from the sense of just planning one time, let's just say like for me, I'm going to do two plantings this year. I'm going to do a planting in May that has a summer blend that's going to peak out sometime in August and then I'm going to come right through and I'm going to plant a fall blend right into that. And it's going to have the, the, the mature green on top, whatever's left that the deer are going to browse. And then the new green's going to come up underneath. And it's just going to be this hodgepodge smorgasbord that the deer can pick whatever they want, whenever they want. And uh, I've gone the other way of saying, okay, well, I'm going to plant. And I did this the past couple of years where I'll say, okay, I'm going to plant uh, a mixture that has an annual clover 
and peas and some soybeans in this one section, knowing that that's going to be, that's going to get hammered pretty quick. You know, once that's in the ground, they're going to eat that until it's gone. Yeah. But then I'm going to also say, okay, this other half is going to be brassicas and that'll probably get, you know, a little bit later into the season. I know they're going to eat it when it's coming out of the ground, but I'm hoping there's enough buffer with this, the, the beans and peas and stuff like that, that they'll work into the brassicas. And then the other thing I'm going to do a few weeks after is I'm going to, I'm going to top dress these fields with, and I say top dress, I'm just going out with a bag spreader and I'm broadcasting uh, cereal grains. I'll take some rye and I'll put some rye over top. So then, you know, as that's coming up and the other stuff gets depleted, rye's coming up and that's the next best thing because, I mean, rye grows anywhere. So I've done that way of splitting it up, you know, having multiple species, but you're kind of planting a monocrop. You're just doing it in different sections of your property or different sections of the field. And now I've kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, I don't think I need to do that. And I think I can do it with, with different blends that are mixed together if, if, it, if it's mixed correctly. Okay. So I've heard uh, a seed like a brassica, right, or, or, or radish. Sometimes that takes deer a season or two to acclimate to before they they treat it as a true food source. Um, give me an example, and maybe that was the example, but give me an example of uh maybe a, a food plot or a seed or a vegetable that it takes, takes deer time to get acclimated to. And then give me an example of, of a food source that would be an instant hit for, for deer. Honestly, that's different everywhere you go. And the reason I say that I, I just had Dr. Grant Woods on my podcast, not that long ago. And he was talking about when he was going through his um, his career at the Proving Grounds, he planted soybeans on a lot of acres on his 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 uh, his ground. He said the deer didn't touch him for the first two years. He said he'd have soybeans that were literally five, six feet tall and deer would walk by them and eat ragweed that was next to him. And he's like, what the heck is going on? But it, it took a little bit of time and all of a sudden he couldn't keep beans growing at all. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really relative to the area and stuff. A uh, good example I had, um, the, the mix that I was using on this one property um, I had a, a friend of mine that was putting in this new food plot and he said, well, what should I plant? I said, well, hey, I said, I'll just get some extra seed for you. Do the same program I have and let's just see what happens. And he did and it wasn't bad. But what was funny is the brassicas at my place, and this is only five miles apart. The brassicas at my place were lit high in November. At his place in February, there were still giant leaves and bulbs. The deer didn't touch them. So there, there's there's things going on, I think, from just a palatability or an interest in, or, or uh, food source availability in certain areas that will influence that. But I also think there's something to be said when you have certain mixes, because, you know, while plants can compete with each other, they can also um, kind of be like a companion crop to each other. And what I'm noticing is, and, and I talked about this with Al Tomechko the other day on uh, from Vitalize Seed. He was talking about like when you mix stuff together that, and the way the nutrients are cycling through those plants, you know, he goes, I've had guys that planted brassicas and they said they never touched them. And then I had brassicas in my multi-species mix and they ate them down to nothing. Well, what's going on here? Well, it's got to be something with the nutrients moving through that plant. It's got to be a more attractive plant. So that's a long-winded answer to what you just asked because I, but I, I think it's pretty complex. Yeah. Could, could it be possible that um, they didn't eat a, uh a standalone brassica food plot because it did take some time to get acclimated to it versus a mixed 
like let's say brassicas mixed in with clover or mixed in with peas or whatever you mix mm-hmm. them in with and because they're eating other things the brassicas are also there right next to them and they're just like well since i'm here i'm gonna eat it i think it's very possible and you know i i will tell i would tell you i get to a point and i'm this is where i'm bad when it gets to food i would love to know the answer to those questions but yeah. i don't because what i do is i put a food plot out and i'm looking at the soil i'm looking at my tonnage and i'm looking to see if the deer are eating it and yeah. if they're doing all three of those things i i don't really get into the nitty-gritty details because i'm more focused about trying to kill the deer that's using the food plots and not necessarily the bad and that's one thing i'm bad because people ask me those very specific questions which would be cool to know but I, I, I say all the time, too, like, there's a part of me that says, to a degree, I, I'm going to plateau in, in that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Makes sense. All right. Uh, let's see here. Now, when it comes to, like, is there a difference between just wanting to shoot, like, whole deer versus wanting to grow the best possible food plot? I absolutely. I think that's a that's the, and I think it goes back to what your buddy Tom was talking about, because uh, I think I listened to some of the episodes that he has on. He's got a lot of really great ideas. And I, I think one thing he was talking about and, and a lot of people talk about this is, you know, I don't care what the deer are doing in June, July, August. I care what they're doing about during the hunting season. And that makes sense, because during the hunting season, that's when I'm going to have the biggest um, uh, the biggest impact um, on what they're doing in their day-to-day life. Right. So if I can keep them safe and I can do, keep them secure, they're not going to get shot by neighbors. And, and, uh, you know, I want that, you know, that's the, that's the stress period, especially, you know, the latitude that you got, you know, we're at, you know, we get into winter, that's usually a high stress event. So if I can keep them happy, then I'm good now. Yeah. And honestly, that there's nothing wrong with that from a, from a guys who shoot mature bucks, there's nothing wrong with that. But I am, I am, I've really kind of shifted my thinking a little bit here in recent times because I go all across Eastern Pennsylvania and it is insane. First of all, we have pretty good, healthy deer populations in some place, but the level of pressure on agricultural fields is insane. Um, and you know, you're, I got you're talking people, about a deer, the deer quantity, quantity, yes, okay, yeah, and, okay. and 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 uh, what. There's social pressures between farmers and hunters about too many deer versus not enough deer. And I've come to the conclusion that the reason there's this disconnect is because our ideas of having our our private property that we post and we do all these these positive quality deer management quality hunting strategy things for that again I'm not I'm not bashing I do them myself. But what's happened is. I think we've segregated the landscape and like the entire like landscape outside of agricultural areas is degraded in so many places I go to. So we've got this high stress on agricultural crops. You might have a couple island properties that are doing things right, but you're, you're segmenting them in such small parcels and there's nothing being done across the entire landscape of any drastic matter to have that effect on growing deer. You know, you, you talk about growing deer, Dr. You know, Dr. Grant Woods, you know, did it on, a, I think it was like a 1500 acre parcel. Uh, that's a big parcel and did a ton of work for the last how many years. But I think the majority of us on our back 40, we can have an impact. But um, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a tangent a little bit, but I'm thinking about this, like, there's so many downsides or flaws, I think, with that model of, you know, just doing it in the fall, because I think yeah. there's adverse 
things going on outside of the, the grand scheme of things for wildlife. And I don't like it and I don't know how to fix it. And I'm just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you brought up something like a lot of the management practices that we see where a deer can get to, you know, this, this giant antlered age class, right? So let, I'm just going to take Iowa, for example, you mm-hmm. know, you, you, you either have neighborhoods of people. And I mean, a, a connected 3000, 4,000 acres of like-minded individuals who are all under the same, Hey man, we're, we're passing four-year-olds. We're passing five-year-olds to get to that gigantic rack or, or it's just a, a low, a very low populated area, which allows uh, deer to get to a higher age class you know there's always those honey holes but the management practices are distributed across a very big landscape all right Mm. now when we're talking about your 40 acres your 20 acre pieces i mean in the grand scheme of things if your neighbors are shooting you know yearlings every year let's i'll just use pennsylvania i'm thinking you know pennsylvania Mm -hmm. is, is a perfect example in my opinion of a of a a high pressure, I mean, high hunting pressure state. So smaller parcels, your neighbors are shooting yearlings, two-year-olds. Does your 40 acres or 20 acres or whatever, you know, whatever you might consider a small acreage uh, amount of acres, does, will that play an impact, have an impact on the, the age class if your neighbors are not on board? I think slightly. I mean, if you do things in a certain way, I mean, I've, I've hunted areas with properties like that that you're discussing. And yeah, they're, they're, like if everything is done right, I, I do see a difference in the age class and the deer I'm hunting there versus the, the generator. But all in all, I mean, I, I've hunted some pretty big places, you know, for our area. And I say pretty big, you know, to me, uh, two to 300 acre property um, in, in, in our area, that's a pretty sizable property. And, you know, I, I I see positive things happen. I've seen the age class of the deer change, and we've been able to hunt in some some really good buck. But at the same time, I've you know year in and year out, they start saying, "Well, I'm not getting pictures of this one. I'm not getting pictures of this one." And by the end of the season, I'm not getting pictures of any of them. And then you start doing your networking in the neighborhood and figure out, yeah, he got shot at the end of archery. He got shot. He got shot in uh, in gun season. Yeah. Uh, th- this one got hit by a car. This one we found dead, um, you know, stuff like that. So I'm all for getting people out there hunting, but let's face it. What, the more hunting pressure there is, if your goal is shooting big deer, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a bell curve, right. Or, or a teeter totter, you know, you can't, it's, it's hard to have both unless, you know, there is a, uh, a united effort to, pass young deer to get them to a higher age class no matter how good your food plots are and i think that's why we have division within the hunting community because wherever you fall in spectrum it's really hard for everybody to get what they want in that right right you just you just can't make it work yeah that makes a lot of sense all right um i i ask this same question every year to somebody and i say Mm -hmm. You know, I am a complete rookie. Like, I don't know anything mm-hmm. about food plots just because the properties that I have hunted in the past did not offer the opportunity to plant food plots. Mm-hmm. With that said, now I have a new hunting property that if I play my cards right, I might be able to 
throw a half acre clover plot in somewhere mm-hmm. or uh you know or something maybe for late season or whatever that whatever the case may be and so what i really am trying to uh say here is what are some of the biggest mistakes that new food plot planners in your opinion make that will that just ruins all the time and energy that they put in hmm. well um from a hunting standpoint, I think sometimes people don't think about how uh, how deer interact on a day-to-day basis. Like, what the, what's a deer's behavior and what are they going to do? And how does that food plot that you're placing affect that? Mm-hmm. So I, I've seen food plots go in the wrong places. And a lot of the time it's because, you know, um, hey, we just had the back 40 logged and there's this nice log landing right in the center of it. You know, I think I ought to put a, a nice food plot there. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. It depends on how you can access that property and everything else. Uh, A big one that I get a lot of the time, I'll get guys that'll give me soil samples all the time. They'll say, why can I not get this food plot to grow? I've got a really good pH. I I threw sometimes thousands of dollars in fertility on the thing. And it's, you know, the the fertility is better than some of the ag fields that I'm in. They're like, why isn't this growing? I'm like, well, I don't know. I got to see the site. And then uh, I'll show up there and the entire small little food plot is surrounded by giant hundred plus year old trees that there's very little sunlight that's actually able to get that. I mean, whatever nutrients you want to talk about, foods need, uh, plants need uh, sunlight and they need water big time. So uh, lack of sunlight is, is a simple one. You take a chainsaw for a few hours and you fix that problem. And then the, the second one is a lot of the time, again, logging roads, log landings, um, you know, old pastures that had too much animal traffic on it, then they got pulled, and the, the soil structure is compacted. I mean, I had a, I had one one time, like, this could be growing, and I literally gave him my shovel. I said, I want you to, to stand on my shovel and break, break dirt. And first of all, he didn't want to do it, and I said, just do it. I'm trying to show you something. And he stood on the shovel and the shovel went in maybe an inch. I said, feel how hard the ground is. I said, if you can't get on, I said, I guarantee you're over 200 pounds. I said, if you can't get on with a spade shovel, I said, how's a plant root going to get through? I said, so I don't care what your fertility is. I said, you need to make sure that the soil structure is good. And that might involve tillage. That might involve a food plot program that's going to be designed to get some root aggregates there. There's a lot, but I think those are two physical attributes that people overlook with food plots that are really important is there is there such thing as like a set it and forget it type food plot i mean that you can just like jesus i have no time i want a food plot but i have no time i don't want to put any energy into it i'm just going to take this seed out of my pocket and i'm going to throw it in the dirt and i'm going to walk away and hope that i mean is, is there such thing as that Sometimes if the weather cooperates for you, you know what I actually think might be the best set it and forget it food plot. You know, Marcus Lashley has been talking a lot about bow stand burns and talking about taking an area around your bow stand and burning it in the springtime and letting that herbaceous growth come up. You're going to get a lot of native brows in that case. If, you know, if you don't have a ton of invasives that are, that are going to, so, so to me, the best set it, forget it food plots probably already there. But when it comes to like planting stuff, um, yeah, I mean, clover, once you get established, can be low maintenance. I mean, maybe you got to spray it once or twice a year. Um, you know, if, the, if if you're planting something in, let's just say, in the fall, like a fall blend, August, September, 
if the field's clean, I mean, you can throw cereal grains out and radishes and walk away and it'll grow. I mean, yeah. like I said, we talked about that earlier. I mean, it's, it, those are plants that throw, will grow in my driveway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then what would be some of the don't forget to do this type? Like if I'm going to, if you're going to do this, don't forget this one step. You know, you can forget other steps, but don't forget this one step in planting a food plot. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, that can be a lot of things. Um, so pretty common. Like, so I, I do a lot of no-till food plots. I try to minimize the amount of tillage that I do. In fact, uh, I hate saying this, but I'm actually going to be tilling a food plot here this spring because the uh, the pH is in the dirt low. I mean, it's a 5-1. It has a lot of long ways to go. So I decided rather than, you know, surface applying lime, which is going to leach, you know, a quarter to a half an inch a year, I decided I'd incorporate that into soil with, with lime and get it give it a, a, a bump start. So when I do that, you know, tilling and tilling is still real common food plot. So um, when I do that, I'm going to um, I have some leftover crimson clover and some radishes and, and cereal greens. And I'm just going to broadcast it out, like just so it, it, you know, gets something growing. It doesn't replace with weeds. And then I'll I'll plant it in fall with what I want. But it's kind of like a cover crop. But I think one thing that people don't uh always do and is important cold to packing when you till is uh, is the best seed to soil contact you know kind of minimize aeration in the soil um, and, and firm your seed bed so you know I, I think that's something that gets overlooked and you, you don't have to have a fancy cold to packer I mean you can you can literally cold to pack with tires sometimes in a food plot and you'll get away with it but um, if you're doing like a, a large seed, like let's say you're going to do a soybean, a pea, uh, some kind of larger soft seed, broadcasting into the tilled ground and then cold packing, usually if it's fluffed up, you know, a cold packer will set those seeds at an appropriate depth. Uh, but if you're doing small seeds like clovers, alfalfa, something like that, and you're going to till the whole field, um, it's better actually to cold pack it one time broadcast your seed and then cold the packet again and i think that really set because you could get the seeds too deep in a sense and uh, I, I think that'll set your seed bed a lot so cold the packing is an important one um yeah that's a hard question to answer because i've seen so many different cases and flaws and i never really run into one specific situation that just happens all the time gotcha gotcha like is uh pay like patience how important is patience with and you can answer this in food plot or just habitat management in general. I got to answer that with a question. How important is patience when it comes to your daily life, when it comes to your family, your kids, your job, the people you work with patience is important. And it's one of those things it's, it's, it's learned. Um, it's extremely important. One example I'm going to, I'm going to give you, I, I have this new property. I, I hunted it last year. It was, it was acquired from, I acquired it in the winter time of 22. So, um, you know, I did very little to it, but I mean, I planted a food plot on it. And as I hunted it, like I'm starting to like really grind my gears. Like, man, I could see how I want to cut this corridor in i want to cut this bedding in a little bit better i have a spot that i'm really excited i'd like to put a water hole at i'd like to make this one area of a food plot bigger i've had a second food plot i've got all these lists of things i'm doing i want to do in my head and uh i'm realizing that 
a couple things could happen if I do that. Number one, I don't own the property. It's it's family-owned ground. And I have the free will to do what I want on it, basically. However, if I start doing improvements on that property before they settle in and I know what they are doing outside of hunting, I could really shoot myself in the foot, do a ton of work, and it's not going to – it's going to hurt me if, you know – the one thing they said, like, oh, we want to we want to put a pond in. Well, this one area that they want to put a pond in is the only area in the property that I think they could for a water source. Um, it's exactly where I would want to expand the one food plot. So if I expanded that food plot and they're going up there to the pond all the time, I just shot myself in the foot. Probably spent hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars, and it was a fail. Mm-hmm. So you know, to me, patience um, in in this sense is actually being patient and understanding how. I can achieve my goals and achieve the landowner's goals. But I mean, you can take that into food plots and anything. Patience is huge. Um, I'll give you another example of patience with planting stuff. It's not food plots, but it's switchgrass. Planting warm season grasses, man, that's that's the hot thing. Everybody wants to plant switchgrass and this and that. Well, I had a, I had a guy, uh, he's actually one of my clients, a farmer, but he's, he's a farmer and a, he's actually a pharmacist that has a farming hobby and a hunting problem. And he has this, uh, this 150 acre tillable ground. And this one field is like 10 acres. He said, I'm taking that out. I'm going to put it in switchgrass. What should I do? So I gave him my, my, my concoction, what I think he ought to do. And one thing he didn't tell me, and I didn't realize until we started is he had a ton of warm season grass problems, foxtail, fall panic, them just junk grass that can really choke out uh, switchgrass. So year one, switchgrass comes up really really nice but then by the end of the year it was just a mess it had grasses everywhere and he's like oh this was a fail i said be patient i said that switchgrass is established i said you just don't see it because it didn't get to the height because it was being a p i said you watch i said in the springtime i said this is going to take off well thank god he didn't kill it the next spring he was he was moaning and whining complaining i'm going to kill this i said let's go out and look at it and this was in march so it was before it was growing i said look i said here's the rows of the switchgrass i said it's a perennial grass it takes a long time to get established i said you've got that root mass below it's established i said if you do the things you need to do to manage those grasses that are causing you problems i said this switchgrass is going to take off it's going to be six feet plus tall where you planted it all right all right and thank god he listened to me and in may he's like hey you were right i'm like oh for once in my life (laughs) there you go so um, that's just an example of patience i mean perennials take patience yeah okay random question here um you can only choose one food plot seed to plant for the rest of your life and it can only be one what what seed (laughs) is that for me, it would be clover. Um, yeah. There was a time I would have hate to admit that because I, I have this um, conversation ongoing with my uncle because we used to have everything in, in clover um, at his property. And then we've kind of gone down the, the avenue of of annuals and, and doing some cool stuff with there, which I've really enjoyed. But he's made comments multiple times about, I think we should just put everything back in clover. And I'm, and I'm like a naysayer, like, no, 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 we don't want to do that and this and that. But you know what? He's right, and I've talked about a lot, a lot of other people that, for me, probably one of the most versatile plants that um, I could plant in my area is, uh, is is a multi-species clover plant. It just seems like that does really well for, um, for especially all of archery season. And I mean, I've killed deer on clover food plots in December just yeah. because that was the best food source available. Yeah, 
Okay. Perfect, man. Well, Mitch, man, uh, as always, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. If you want to listen to more of what Mitch has to say, the dude's smart. And recently, Mitch, I've gotten, like, in the past, I want to say two weeks, I've got, like, five uh, emails or um, messages come in basically saying, hey, dude, I love the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast, so keep doing what you're doing. It's turning out great. Um, you're not very... Mitch is very knowledgeable about all of this, as you can tell from this episode. So go head over to the uh, Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast here on the Sportsman's Empire Network. Uh, give him a, a listen and give him a chance. I think he'll blow your mind with his knowledge. And uh, again, man, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. This is always fun. Appreciate it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Mitch. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to hop on and listen to me BS with Mitch about this topic. Huge shout out to Tethered, Wasp, HuntStand, and Vortex. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast and, um, and, and, and let them know if you decide to buy their products where you heard it from. Uh, that would just mean a lot to me. Please go to iTunes, leave a five-star review. Let everybody know how badass this podcast is and the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network is. And uh, that's it, man. Good vibes in, good vibes out, and we'll talk to you next time.